You might be asking, why are we in Romans? Didn't we just start a new series a week ago in 2 Timothy? We did just start a new series there. And even though we did that last week, and I was expecting to be rolling through that consecutively over the next several months, I believe that the Lord has redirected us this morning. I know He redirected me this week in my preparation of just studying His Word. He redirected us for this reason. I, I think he, he wants us to have a, a bit of a family moment and address some things that have touched us deeply this week. And you may not all be aware of some of the things that have touched us deeply this week, but they have touched all of us because we're the body of Christ. We are one. And I want to share with you some of the things that even in just the last week, the Lord has revealed to us. There's at least three significant occurrences of difficult and sad news that we've received since last Sunday. The first one is that uh, you, you might remember Haley Smith. Haley Smith, uh, who was here, she was doing her internship, uh, a Moody student doing a musical internship. She was the one who was leading our children's choir uh, over the last couple of years. And we sent her off as she was heading to Africa, working with a ministry called Rafiki. She was going to Africa to do similar ministry with children there on that continent, teaching them the Word of God, helping them to sing the Word of God. She was leaving in September, and we didn't get the notification of this until just this last week. But she, we got a note from her missions agency that said that the day before she was supposed to leave, and did leave, uh, she had an MRI. And she has had a history of brain tumor. And she had an MRI, and they just wanted to make sure she was ready to go on her extended trip overseas. And they found that the tumor that was in her brain was growing again, rather than shrinking and she went anyway and just trusted that medication, the things that they were doing for her would, would be able to you know, mitigate some of those effects. But as she was there and working there, the effects began to take root in her, in her brain and, and, and affect her, her body in ways that, that caused her to have to come home. And so she's home now and she's being treated for that illness. And we got word of that this week. And, and then last Sunday... After the sermon, uh, Rob Nord came up to me and, and, and mentioned to me something about Paul Sumner. And I said, I, what are you talking about? He said, Paul's in the hospital. And, uh, and I, I said, I didn't know that. And so I immediately talked to Paul after church. Uh, and I went over to visit him uh, in the hospital on Monday. And it, similarly, Paul they found in Paul a brain tumor. He was at work and he was having motor skill issues. And he walked himself over to the hospital and they found a, a tumor on his brain. They, they weren't sure you know, what that meant, if it started there, if it had maybe traveled there for somewhere else. And so they did surgery on him on Wednesday morning. They were able to remove that tumor and evaluate it. And they, and they found that he has a very aggressive form of cancer. And the prognosis is not good. According to the, the doctors, our brother Paul will not survive this year. And then, also, over the last week, and news received this week, and I was just given permission this morning to share this with you, our brother Jim Doherty found that he has a growth, a cancerous growth in his esophagus, in the lymph nodes near his esophagus. And they were able to do some testing on him this week and find that he's at stage 3, and they will begin chemo and treatments for him in the coming weeks and hope to, hope to be able to go in there and, and do surgery as well. So 
within the span of a week to hear that three of our brothers and sisters have it's been a hard week and and on top of that to be in the hospital visiting Carol Olson to be on top of that to be in the hospital visiting Caitlin Burdick and just to sense God you are touching our church our family with a lot These are heavy burdens. And as we become more aware of these things and as we learn to walk together through these things, it's times like these that I know we can be discouraged. And it's times like these I know that we can question the goodness of God. And so that's where the Lord just impressed upon me this week to, 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 to make me feel and, and to know even, even deeper in my bones that it's these times that drive us to His Word. That drive us to His Word for, for explanations. That drive us to His Word for comfort. Because God's Word is our comfort. And God's Word is our comfort because God is our comfort. Father, Son, and Spirit. He's near to us. In our times of trouble. And He has something to say to us even when we don't know what to say ourselves. I believe that in my bones. And so it's in moments of suffering, it's in moments of sadness, we need a, a theology that points us to the nature and the character of our good God. And I say that to bring something to us this morning, but I want to... I wanna, I wanna say this up front and first. It is my, it's my great fear that I would say something this morning that would be trite or pithy. And I want to say up front, I don't have all the answers. I, I, we come to the Word of God and we seek Him in His Word, but we know that we don't, we don't have all the answers. That even as we search the Scriptures and we, we trust in the Spirit to reveal truth to us, we are finite people. We don't know the mind of God. But we have this promise. He's given to us all that we need. And I do believe that it is in His Word that we find the things that we can cling to in times like this. And so I want to take us to Romans 8 this morning and read starting in verse 18. An attempt in this text to just give to us a theology of sickness and death. Romans 8, verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected in futility, not willingly, but because of Him who subjected it, in hope, that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we eagerly wait for adoption as sons the redemption of our bodies. 
For in this hope, we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray as we ought. But the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom He predestined, He also called. And those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. Putting together a theology of of sickness and death from this text, there are three key things that, that stand out to me. And here's the first one. The first one is the world is broken and God is sovereign. The world is broken and God is sovereign. And I want you to notice that I placed an and where I could have placed a but. I could have said the world is broken, but God is sovereign. But I think that would convey something of a reaction on God's part. God's not reactive to brokenness. He's sovereign over it. The world is broken and God is sovereign. And I look down at verses 20 and 21 and I, and I, and I see that there. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of Him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. You know, the whole Bible affirms what these two verses reveal about the state of the world that we live in. Because of the sweeping effects of sin, everything, everything is broken. Everything exists under the curse of Adam and Eve's fall from from grace. And that means this. It means that decay and corruption are unavoidable. Notice that in verse 21, we we read that we need to be freed from our bondage to corruption. That that says something that that the world's brokenness is an all-encompassing thing and it's enslaving. And it's not just a spiritual problem. It's material. It includes our bodies. Recall in verse 23 that we're awaiting the redemption of our bodies, not just our souls. So when we see things in the world like sickness, we see disease, we see cancer, we can know why these things exist. It's because our bodies as a part of creation are in a constant state of corruption with everything else. Now I want to be clear what that means and what it doesn't mean. What it does not mean is that every experience of sickness or disease is a direct result of some 
personal sin that you've committed, as if you're being judged directly in proportion to your level of faith, directly in proportion to your level of righteousness, or your worthiness. That's not what it means. The prosperity gospel would have you believe that, but don't. That's false teaching. And Jesus makes that clear Himself in Luke chapter 13, verses 1-5. to I want to just read this for you. Listen to it. It says, There were some present at that very time who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. So they bring this, this tragedy, this physical tragedy to Jesus. And He answered them and He said, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and it killed them. Do you think they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. What Jesus is making clear is that bad things happen to our bodies. And when they do, it's not necessarily the direct result of personal sin, but rather they're the result of the pervasive brokenness resulting from original sin that has placed all of us in bondage under the power of decay and death. That's why He says, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Our deliverance from the power of death over our physical bodies must and can only be achieved through Christ's offering that sets us free from that power. And we'll come back to that in a moment. But but the point now is that what Paul is getting at here in Romans 8, it's bigger than us. It's bigger than us. Creation has been subjected to futility to bondage in corruption because of the destructive power of sin. And the righteous and the unrighteous person alike are still subjected to those universal effects. Now this is interesting. He's asked, but why? Here's where the and rather than but God is sovereign comes into play. Who subjected the world to this futility? You see that in the text here. It says, because of Him who subjected it to this futility, who is this Him? Was it Adam? By sin? Was it Satan? By temptation? No, the answer is, it's God. God is the Him who subjected this world to this futility. And I know that because of what it says at the end of verse 20. Look at it again. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of Him who subjected it, get this, in hope. That little phrase there, subjected in hope, gives design and gives purpose to all of this brokenness and futility. Neither Adam and Eve nor Satan could be ultimately responsible for having that purpose in mind because none of them intended to bring corruption upon the world in order that the hope of redemption might be set alight in our hearts. That wasn't their intent. 
None of them could have purposed that someday the the freedom of the glory of the children of God, as we see here in verse 21, that that freedom of the glory might shine even more brightly amidst the backdrop of brokenness. Only one person could subject creation to futility with that design and that purpose. And it's none other than the just and loving Creator, God Himself. And I know that's hard to comprehend. I know that's hard to comprehend. But it's biblical truth that you need to know in the midst of your suffering. Listen, God has a purpose in it. God has a purpose in it. It didn't catch Him off guard. He isn't reactive to it. He's in it. He's in it. He's not responsible for committing the sin that causes your brokenness, but He has a purpose in it. And that purpose is this. It's the existence of the Gospel itself. In other words, the Gospel was not an afterthought. The Gospel was God's plan A all along, even before He created the world. And Ephesians 1 tells us this. Listen again. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Listen. Even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy, and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption to Himself through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us this, the mystery of His will, according to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth. Those are powerful words. And they're powerful words because they tell us that God had the Gospel in mind before He ever said, let there be light. Thus setting the, 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 the whole process of creation in motion. He knew before He created Satan that He would rebel. He knew before He created Adam and Eve that they would rebel. He knew that the perfect world that He created, this world that He would call good, He knew that it would be corrupted. And understand this. He sovereignly purposed this in order to show the world that He was about to create this amazing truth. Hear this. He wanted to show us that His love is the kind of love that will enter into and go deeper than our brokenness. I believe that with all of my being. He wants to show us His love is the kind of love that will enter into and go deeper than 
our brokenness. I can't really wrap my finite mind around all of that. But it's an amazing thing to, to, to consider. His, his plan was a rescue plan from the beginning. And I think I, I, I kind of get it. Even though I can't fully understand it, I think I kind of get it. And, and, and this helps me. God's love is displayed and experienced in fuller ways when it's freely given against the backdrop of brokenness. And I think you know that by instinct when you go to the movie theater and you watch a romantic movie. Because there's no compelling romantic movie or romantic book that starts with a, a young couple who meets in high school and they start dating and, and they just live happily ever after and, and nothing bad ever happens to them in their lives. Right? No, we, we, we see a, a romantic movie and we see that there is, there's, this, there's this couple and what happens is there's something that goes wrong, right? There's some conflict. There's, there's some obstacle that needs to be overcome. And what makes the love of the movie so compelling is that love is willing to overcome the obstacle. He's willing to step into it and pursue and overcome and do whatever it takes to go deep and rescue. And, and, and then, when it's all said and done, and that pursuit has been made and that obstacle has been overcome, we see the power and the triumph of love and we walk out of a movie theater seeing somebody like that and we say, oh, that, that somebody would love me like that. Right? You know it by instinct. And that's, that helps me understand this. Love's deepest expression is felt. Its deepest expression is felt when it pursues and covers that which opposes it. We wouldn't really know the unmatched depth and breadth of God's love without the despair and the corruption of our complete brokenness. And I'm telling us this because it helps us understand that in our experiences of that brokenness, even in sickness and cancer and death, that God has a purpose in it for our benefit. He's in it. His goodness is in it. It points us towards the hope that He intended for us to have all along. He subjected creation in hope. So what is the hope? What's the second thing I pull out of this text? Christ is our hope. Christ is our hope. And our salvation in Him is a foretaste of what's to come. Look at verse 24. For in this hope we were saved. Hope points us to our salvation. And our salvation is found in Jesus Christ. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That's 1 Timothy 1.15. When we experience brokenness, including sickness that leads to death, we're being directed towards the hope that God created us to find in Jesus. 
I'm going to say that again because I think it's important. When we experience the brokenness, we're being directed towards the hope that God intended us to find in Jesus. And it's really important to understand how our hope is realized in that salvation that Jesus offers to us. And the Bible makes clear that that Jesus' ministry has two important manifestations. There's the first coming of Jesus. And then there's His second coming. And we we need to know that the benefit of His first coming is a necessary precursor to the benefits of His second. Hear me on this. His first coming, His first coming, wasn't meant simply to deal with the symptoms of creation's brokenness. It was meant to deal once and for all with the cause of that brokenness. And so many people who were alive at the time of His first coming, they missed that. And I fear that we're in danger of missing the same thing. How? Well, they saw Jesus heal people physically, right? They saw that, and and understandably, this excited them, and they clamored for Jesus, come and heal me too, of all all the material things that ail me. But they didn't hear him when he explained what he was ultimately doing. Yes, he healed people of sickness. He even raised some from the dead. But he preached of an even greater present need the forgiveness of sin. And all this healing and all the miracles that he did and all the ministry, all was done all the while he had set his face squarely towards the cross. That's what he came to do. The physical healings were a sign. They were a foretaste of the realities that exist within the kingdom of God. He was peeling back the veil to show us this is the kingdom. there There is wholeness in the kingdom. But the entrance to the kingdom was only to be granted through the forgiveness of sin. Think about that. What what benefit is it to be healed of some present disease only to to gain, what, days? Maybe maybe years until another one's going to come and destroy you anyway. What good is it to treat symptoms but never address the cause? What we truly need is to be set free from the power of death. Not its symptoms. Its power. And Jesus' first coming was purposed to take care of the ultimate cause of our brokenness. On the cross, He bore our sin. On the cross, He absorbed the wrath of God against human rebellion. And He not only died... But He rose again in power to conquer the power of death. By His death, He put death to death. And now through faith in His death and resurrection, the kingdom door has been opened. But here's our present reality. The time of complete physical redemption has not yet come. There's still spiritual healing that needs to take place. There are others who still need to respond in faith 
to what Christ did at His first coming. His death and His resurrection for the forgiveness of sin. That's why the world goes on. That's what we're still waiting for. God has not yet called in all of His elect. And as long as that purpose of God remains, the redeemed in Christ remain in this broken world. And we will suffer the present realities of that brokenness. Now we have this hope. That brokenness has no eternal power over us anymore. But it still remains in temporal effect. And so things like sickness and disease and cancer may yet await us as we learn to identify in the sufferings of Christ, as we learn to lean on His comfort and endure until His second coming when all will finally be made new. Then the symptoms will be eradicated because then the cause will be finally eliminated in all of God's elect. So we ask this question, God, why tarry? Why, why, why must we yet endure? And that's where I don't want to say something pithy. I don't pretend to know the mind of God. I really don't. But I do believe this, that at least in part, we yet endure because it makes our salvation and the reward of heaven that we await that much sweeter. We're promised this. In our suffering, we get more of Christ. We get more of Christ. We get more of His love. We get more of His grace. That's now. And I I further believe that, that, that part of the joy of heaven, besides being ultimately in the presence of Christ forever. I mean, that's the, that's the joy of heaven. But, but a part of that, I, I firmly believe this. Somehow, somehow, the knowledge that we'll have, the deep knowledge that we'll have of what we've been saved from, because we've experienced the brokenness of it, will make that eternity taste sweeter. And we know this too. There is a second coming of Christ. There is a second coming. And our current realized salvation is a foretaste of its power. Verse 21 again. Creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and will obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Verse 23, and not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we eagerly wait for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. We are experiencing the first fruits of Christ's redeeming work. And in that experience, there is hope. There's an age coming when the people of God 
who have endured to the end in faith will be delivered from all futility and corruption spiritually and physically. We have to wait for its appearing, but it will happen. 1 Corinthians 15, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and will be changed. For this perishable body must put on imperishable. This mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Death, where is your sting? Philippians 3, but our citizenship is in heaven and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly bodies to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him even to subject all things to Himself. We read from Revelation 21 a little bit earlier. I'll come back to it. He will wipe away every tear from our eyes. There will be no longer any death. There shall be no longer any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. There is coming a day when every disease will be healed forever. And Haley and Paul and and Jim and all the others among us will be completely restored to fullness of life. Fullness of health in the kingdom of heaven. That day is coming. But it's not yet. Today we still groan awaiting the redemption of our bodies. But it's coming. And this is our hope. We find in it patience to endure. Look at verse 24 again. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. So what do we do in the meantime as we patiently endure in this life of suffering? This is the third thing I see in the text. We wait by trusting in a loving God with a confident faith. And I'm just going to read to you again some of this text. And I'm just letting the text here speak for itself. But look at verse 18 again. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. That's a precious truth. Verse 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good those who are called according to His purpose. For again, those whom He foreknew, He predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom He predestined, He also called. And those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. And so Paul says, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us 
all things. And look down at verse 37. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. You know why those things can't separate us? Because they're all finite things, and the love of God is an infinite thing. There is confidence to be had in the promises of a loving God who works all things together for our good. And we have this as well. I skipped over it. Look back at verse 26. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We don't know what to pray as we ought, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. So we wait with confident faith in a loving God, but He's given us this too. He's given us His Spirit. He indwells us. He empowers us as we wait. And He encourages us to pray. Why? Prayer is effective, that's why. Prayer is effective. Sometimes those prayers may be answered for for healing. And sometimes those prayers may be answered by giving us a measure of grace to walk through that which God chooses not to heal. But prayer is effective to transform us and to guide us and to comfort us and to provide for us. And I love, I love how Paul says to us here something that, that, that I often think about. Sometimes I don't know what to pray. But we're promised that the Spirit does. And He prays prayers on our behalf that we can't. When, 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 when the, the, the sorrow and the, and the fear come so overwhelming to me that I don't even know what to say, the Spirit says it for me. And for you, believer, we wait by trusting in a loving God with confident faith. He's given us what we need. So so my conclusion is this, is we need to go into these things with a, a clear theology that informs and equips us for what life will bring our way. And, and it means this, we need to know what we haven't been promised. We need to know what we haven't been promised. We haven't been promised health. We haven't been promised long life. We haven't been promised ease. We haven't been promised a lack of suffering. But you need to know what you have been promised. You've been promised that there's a purpose in your suffering. You've been promised that God is in control. And He loves us. You've been promised that our hope is in Christ and that our future glory is certain because of our salvation. And it's not worth comparing to what we experience now. And you've been promised that the Spirit who indwells you, believer, will sustain you and keep you secure in Him as you endure to the end. 
Because of that, we need to believe this. We need to believe that there is joy to be found in these truths. Even in the midst of our suffering, there is joy to be found in these truths. Even when sickness and death visit the church. I'm going to close with a a quote from John Piper that I find to be really helpful. He says, The glory of God is manifested when He heals. That's true. And the glory of God is manifested when He gives a sweet spirit of hope and peace to the person that He does not heal. For that too is a miracle of grace. Oh, that we might be a people among whom God is often healing our sickness but is also always causing us to be full of joy and peace while our sicknesses remain. If we are a humble and childlike people who cry out to God in our need and trust in His promises, the Holy Spirit will help us and God will bless our church with every possible blessing. He will, as the text says, work everything together for our good. So would you pray with me? And then let's be reminded in tangible ways, in a physical way, how God is working all things together for our good as we come to the table and we eat and drink in Christ. Father, thank You for these big truths that that it is still hard to wrap our minds around, but we believe them, God. We believe them. We believe You. We believe that You're in control. We believe that You're good. We believe that You love us. We believe that You have a purpose in our suffering. And even as we say that we believe that, Lord, we, we pray, we plead with You that You would heal Haley, that You would heal Paul, that You would heal Jim, that You would heal Caitlin, that You would heal Carol, that You would heal all of us who are sick and, 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 and Lord, just dealing with the brokenness of this world. Lord, we ask You for mercy. And we know that if You desire to do that, You will do it. And we thank You for that. But we also believe that You might not and that that would be good. Help us not to say that with with a lump in our throat. But to believe that, no Lord, Your your goodness, Your love, it's experienced in deeper ways when You reach into the midst of our brokenness. And we want to know it. We want to taste it. We want that foretaste, Lord. We want more of Christ. So pursue us in our brokenness and help us to pursue You. And thank You that we know that Jesus came and died and thank You that we know that He's coming again. Thank You for the promise of eternity. Thank You for the promise of of perfection and, and, and the absence of disease and cancer and death forever. Thank You for that. Come, Lord Jesus. But until you do, help us, Lord, to be faithful. To run with endurance the race that's set before us. And help us to be joyful as we do it. You are good. And we love you. Because you first loved us. Through Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.